You're listening to the Central City Assembly podcast. We're dedicated to sharing content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus for the good of our city and helps you grow in your love for Jesus. So enjoy this episode and may you be filled with the love of God the Father. All right, so I, I have a confession to make, you guys. Confession time. Um, I am a word nerd. What? Word nerd? Yeah, I'm a word nerd. What do I mean that, by that? Well, uh, a word nerd is someone who likes to look beyond uh, the surface of words and into their deeper meanings. All right, for, for word nerds, definitions of words are okay, but they're never good enough. Um, we want more, like their etymology right, or where they came from how these words were used from one time in history to the next. Um, Is there anybody else brave enough to confess this morning that they are word nerds? Okay, cool. I am not by myself. I know Jean knows like Latin roots and all these things. She's amazing with words. Um, And it's true that words do change from time to time from one context to the next. Like back in the day, um, the word bad, right, just used to mean bad. Um, But now, the word bad can mean things like cool or awesome or good. Um, Or the word dope. The word dope just used to to refer to drugs. But now, you can turn to somebody and say, man, those shoes you're wearing look really dope. Right? Practice that this morning. Turn to somebody sitting next to you and tell them how dope they look. It's so good. It's fun. Right? so, So, words do change over time, uh, including the words found in the Bible. Um, Not necessarily the Greek, but our translations of those words. So if you read the famous love passage from 1 Corinthians 13 in the Old King James Version, um, it sounds very different from a modern-day translation of the Bible because the, the Shakespearean word they used for love back in the day, it wasn't love, but can you guess what it was? Charity. It was charity. That was their word for love. Um, It it would read like this, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. And so today, in a modern context, when you read the King James Version of that passage, it actually sounds like Paul is encouraging us uh, to take care of the needy and the poor. It's not something you would read or we think you would read during a marriage ceremony about love. But when we read a modern version that uses the word love instead of charity, it's obvious that Paul is talking about a supernatural, sacrificial love. Right? Words change over time, which is why it's important for us to have new translations of the Bible, right? so that the words stay connected to our culture and we understand it better. But when, um, and sometimes, uh, words change over time in such a way that they lose their original meaning and sincerity, right? One of those words is love, right? Love is used to be, or it used to be this word that was reserved for only special reasons and special purposes. Back in the day, you didn't love a TV show or a certain brand of clothing or a favorite Starbucks drink, right? Love had a special meaning and a purpose. Another one of those words, like love, is hope, 
Hope is used very loosely today, like the word love is sometimes used loosely. For example, we often use hope to portray our wishful thinking. Right? We'll say things like, I hope you and your family have a great vacation, right? Um, or I hope the Cowboys make it to the playoffs this season. You see, wishful thinking uh, or, or hope is also used in a positive visualization kind of way. Right? Like we'll say, don't give up hope. Right? You can beat this. I'm holding on to hope that the Cowboys will make it to the playoffs this season, right? See, if, if we can just visualize it, if we can keep thinking and, and hoping for our outcome, maybe it'll happen. But when it comes to facing life's difficulties, or for our series, when it comes to thriving in Babylon, how far do you think wishful thinking and positive visualization will go for you? Right? Would you stake your life on wishful thinking and positive visualization. You see, when we look at Daniel's life in Babylon, in captivity, he didn't just wish everything would be okay and would turn out for good. Daniel didn't just visualize things being okay. He knew, as in knowing a mathematical fact, that everything would, in fact, be okay. And the same is true for all of the people in the Bible who profess to having hope. It wasn't just wishful thinking or positive visualization. Their hope, their biblical hope, was having a deep-seated confidence in God's character and sovereignty. That's a biblical definition of hope, right? Having a deep-seated confidence in God's character and sovereignty. Such a deep-seated hope that Daniel and others in the Bible would stake their lives on it, and they did, and they did. And today, when we say we have hope that Jesus will return one day, right, we're not saying that like a lottery ticket holder hopes his numbers will be drawn in the next lottery, right? Like, I hope my numbers get drawn. I hope Jesus is going to come back one day, right? No, we have a deep-seated confidence in God's character and sovereignty that one day Jesus is going to return, right? For those who have biblical hope, it's not just a wish, it's a promise. It's a promise. And today, we're going to begin looking at three qualities that Daniel brought to the table that helped him not just survive in Babylon, but thrive in Babylon. And those three qualities are hope, humility, and wisdom. And so today, we're going to take a look at the first one, hope. Hope. Everybody say hope with me. We need that word today in our modern context, in our environment, hope, okay? Um, What does biblical hope look like? How do we get it? How do we keep hope in the midst of hardship and difficulties and coronavirus, right? All of these things. And the first thing we need to know is that hope doesn't just come overnight. Hope is not just a given, right? Acquiring hope is a process. So the title of today's message is The Hope Process. The Hope Process. Can we just join in prayer one more time and ask God to be with us? Father, we thank you that you are our hope. We thank you that you never fail us, that you are constant, that you always fulfill your promises that you make with us, your covenants that you make with us. And so, Jesus, we say that you are our hope this morning. And God, would you help us to understand that even more? God, I I know there are many here today, been Christians a long time, who have hope in you. God, I pray that you would elevate their understanding of hope even more. God, take us deeper this morning. 
Help us to know you more, to understand you more, so that we can follow you to the best of our abilities. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said amen. All right, pray for me. I'm hoping my voice will hang. I don't lead worship that often, and I give it my all when I lead, so let's see if my voice can hang this morning. Thank you, my dearest. You're wonderful. All right, so biblical hope, again, that definition is having a deep-seated confidence in God's character and sovereignty. Write that one down. Remember it, okay? Uh, It's the kind of hope, the kind of knowing that you would stake your life on. And what we see from Daniel's life in Babylon is that he had to go through a process of acquiring hope. See, sometimes when we read Daniel, we read it as if it's an on-the-way narrative, like that he's writing it down as he goes, kind of as if it were Daniel's daily diary or his social media timeline, right? Exile, day one. The Babylonians came and destroyed everything. They took everything, including me, hashtag SOS. Exile, day two, I was exposed to bacon for the first time. And though it smelled so good, I resisted the temptation and ate a carrot instead, hashtag staying kosher. Right? But, but Daniel isn't a daily diary written as he went. Um, it's a story written after the fact. So when we read the opening paragraphs, and Daniel is talking about how it was God who was in control and allowed these things to happen, but everything's going to be okay, right? we can't incorrectly assume that Daniel had this incredible faith and incredible hope at the very beginning of exile. Chances are, right, because the words written in Daniel are from an old man who had already been through years of faith-building hardship like we talked about last week. Daniel had already been through a challenging process of acquiring hope, and chances are when King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians invaded, Daniel was probably as scared and frightened as we would be if somebody invaded our country. He he probably had questions and doubts about his future, just like we would have questions and doubts. So the incredible hope that Daniel had in his old age, that deep-seated confidence in God's character and sovereignty, it was acquired through a process that started in his youth. And for us today, hope doesn't come from studying the Bible. It doesn't come from knowing theology or having the mental ability to just block out all negative thoughts. So where does it come from? Here it is. Here's where hope comes from. Hope comes from obediently walking with God and experiencing firsthand his character, power, and faithfulness. Everybody say obedience. Obedience. Hope starts with the simple first step of faith. That first step of believing that God exists and knowing he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's from Hebrews. Right? And then the second step is when we begin to act upon that faith and live the life that God has called us to live. And so hope is gradually built through small and consistent steps of obedience. Through small and consistent steps of obedience. And for Daniel, his steps of acquiring steadfast hope, it started with sticking to as much of a kosher diet as he possibly could. Now, it's kind of hard to say how much of the Bible Daniel actually knew. 
Again, he's this amazing man of God. We think he just had this incredible knowledge of the Bible. But because um, when it comes to faith in God during Daniel's time in Israel, Israel was in the dark ages. It was not good. The adult generation of Daniel's day, they were kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, God had had enough After years of mercy and grace and withholding judgment, it was Daniel's adult generation that was like, all right, God's bringing his judgment now. So that's pretty bad when you think about it. And the priests and the scribes of that day, they weren't doing their job of pointing people to God and reminding them of the scriptures. Large parts of the Torah, the Bible of their day, had been completely forgotten by God's people. So we don't know how much of the Bible Daniel actually knew. But one thing that Daniel did know was the cleanliness laws that God set out concerning food. So when he was drafted into the king's service and went through his training, remember, to become a certified magician, right? Things your Sunday school teacher didn't tell you. Um, Daniel drew a line. He, He said, I can't escape Babylon. I can't avoid this crazy training I have to go through if I want to live. But I can draw a line somewhere and at least try to eat clean food like God requires. I can at least be obedient in one thing. That was Daniel's first act of obedience that led to acquiring hope. And guess what? It worked. It worked. Because the first act of obedience led to Daniel's first experience of God's miraculous intervention. Daniel and his friends uh, were healthier than all of the other people, all the other students in their class. Uh, Through their obedience, God also gave them greater wisdom and knowledge than all of the other students. But in order for the miracle to happen, they had to expose themselves to the opportunity for obedience. Don't miss this part right here. Okay? Now, this might seem small, but it's actually huge. Because I think a lot of followers of Jesus, they avoid putting themselves in situations where they have to be obedient to God. What do I mean by that? Right? Well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't have to go to church. Right? If, I, if I don't go to church, then I won't be pressured to give and serve and be obedient in those things. Right? Or if I avoid homeless and needy people, just walk around, around them, then I won't have to actually show them love and compassion. I'll just go to lunch by myself, or maybe I'll just eat in my office. That way, I won't feel the pressure of having to be an example of Jesus to my coworkers. Come on, church family, right? We might not say it, but we've all thought it before. I've done it before, right? And by avoiding the opportunity to be obedient in those moments, we also avoid the miracle that God wants to do in those moments. If consistent little steps of obedience are how we acquire hope, then what hope-building experiences are you exposing yourself to, right? Because when we obey God, God shows up every single time, right? We let God in that moment show us his character and his power, and then our hope grows stronger, and we experience that deep-seated optimism and confidence that comes from knowing that God can be trusted even when we have no idea what he's doing. Acquiring hope is a process that starts with obedience. All right, everybody got that written down? Ready? Okay. Not only that, but how we interpret our circumstances around us influences our hope. 
Did you know that your hope can be influenced for the good or for the bad? There are things that you can do in your life to strengthen your hope, but there are also things that you can do to weaken your hope. And one of the things we do to weaken our hope is we interpret our circumstances through a negative lens of life rather than through the lens of faith. All right, I want you to think about the first time you watched your favorite uh, good versus evil movie, all right? Um, I'm thinking like the Star Wars trilogy, the original ones, or Lord of the Rings if you didn't read the books first, right? Think of the, f- the first time you watched that movie. You got that image in your mind, right? See, the first time you watched that movie, it was stressful. It was uncertain because you didn't know if the good guys were going to win. And sometimes things get worse before they get good for the good guys, right? The angst builds and builds until it seems like there's no coming back. But then Darth Vader picks up Darth Sidious and throws him to his death. So we thought, if you haven't seen the recent movie. Or, right, the giant eagles come at the last minute to rescue Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, right? And we're like, phew, that was close. I wasn't so sure that they were going to make it at the end. So so that was the first time you watched that movie. Okay, but what about the second time? If it's a good and well-directed movie, then even though you've seen uh, the story, even though you know what's going to happen, you still feel a little angst and stress, uh, stress, but also some joy and ease. Why? Because you know how the story ends. You know how it ends. And one of the things that helps build our hope in this life is knowing how the story ends. So instead of interpreting our present circumstances through the lens of not knowing how everything turns out, we have the blessing and the ability to interpret our circumstances differently because we do know how the story ends, just like Daniel knew. Because before Israel went into exile, one, God told them that was going to happen. But two, God also told them that it wouldn't last forever. That he would eventually rescue Israel and allow them to go back to the promised land. Even some of the prophets knew that the, the exile would only last 70 years. And so when Israel entered exile, I'm sure many of them were, were shook, right, and, and had their eyes opened. So they started to remember, oh, that's right, Jeremiah and Ezekiel said this would happen. Right? But, but they also said that God is going to save us and that no matter how bad things get, no matter how many victories the enemy wins, God has the final word, we will victory in the end. And this seed of hope led the people to pray and repent and seek God in the midst of their exile. Hope is powerful. And don't we also know how the story is going to end? Don't we have Jesus' own words, his own life, death, and resurrection? Don't we have this little book called Revelation that shows us, tells us how the story is going to end? And since we know how the story ends, we can interpret our current circumstances. COVID-19, whatever our hardship or struggle is right now, we can interpret our current circumstances, no matter how bad they get, through that lens of faith. And instead of responding in light of the enemy's successes, 
we can respond in light of God's promises, right? And I know for some, some here today, maybe you're watching online, right, the enemy seems to be shooting all of his fiery arrows in your direction all at once. Right? You feel like Frodo and Samwise at the end of the movie, surrounded by the lava on Mount Doom, and you're like, this is it. There's, no, there's nothing left for me. Right? You're just trying to hang on for dear life. You feel like you are constantly uh, uh, on the defensive. But hear me, biblical hope is not just a defensive shield against the enemy. It's an offensive weapon. It's an offensive weapon. I, I've said before that hope is not an escapist mentality. Hope is an endurance mentality. Hope helps us keep going and not give up. But sometimes we think of endurance as sitting still, right? holding on for as long as possible, waiting things out in our fortress or bombshell shelter right? until things get better. But that's a wrong way to think of hope and endurance. Right, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And in fact, this is so life-changing that I want you to turn to that verse right now. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And if you can underline or highlight this verse, highlight it, underline it. This is a verse to meditate on this week. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Let's honor God's word. Let's do the work. Let's open our Bibles, okay? All right, this is what Jesus said. You know this verse, okay? Jesus said, and I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We love that verse, right? It's a good verse. It's an encouraging verse. And when we think in this verse, when we think of a rock in this verse, we usually think of a sturdy, unshakable foundation. It won't move. It won't crumble. It won't fall no matter what happens. And then on the flip side of that verse, we think that the gates of hell, uh, they're, they're coming after us, right? Trying to defeat us, trying to destroy the church, but not being able to. We often think of this verse in a very defensive way. It's a defensive interpretation of that verse. Okay, but do you know how absurd that really sounds? Because when is the last time you saw somebody pick up their gate and attack somebody else with it? Is that what gates are used for? No, right? Gates are a defensive mechanism. And yes, rocks can be used for steady, immovable foundations, but rocks can also be thrown, right? And what Jesus is saying in this verse, the hope he's trying to convey is that the victory is his already, right? Satan and his minions have lost, and they're standing on the defensive behind their gates, thinking they still have a chance. While Jesus has mobilized his church, that is built on a rock that is being thrown into the world that the gates of hell will never prevail against. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you see the perspective shift on that verse and how important that is? Right? Hope is standing against the enemy and saying, you may have won the first fight, but I know how the story ends. Bad guys lose, good guys win. Hope is that image of David standing up to the giant, not with a shield, but with a pile of rocks ready to go. 
Hope is not just a defensive shield, but an offensive weapon that the gates of hell cannot stand against. So good. So good. If I'm the only one who thinks that's good, that's okay. It's good for me. All right, so, so hope, acquiring hope, is a process. It starts with consistent steps of obedience. How we interpret our circumstances influences our hope. We know how the story ends. Hope is not a defensive shield, or not just a defensive shield, but a powerful, offensive weapon. And also, hope needs protecting. Hope needs protecting. Because we have an enemy who is constantly trying to steal and kill our hope. Because like I said, hope is that powerful, offensive weapon that the enemy cannot stand against. So he hates the hope, the confidence, the courage we have in Jesus. So we need to protect our hope. Okay, and here are three main hope killers uh, that we need to be aware of and how we combat them, okay? And the first one is what's called spiritual myopia. Now, I have physical myopia, which simply means that when I take off my glasses, I can only see things that are cl- or see things clearly that are right in front of my face. Right? My- myopia is also it's a fancy term for nearsightedness. Lots of people have it, uh, and I have severe myopia. So I need things to be really close to me in order for them for me to see them clearly. Uh, There have been many times when my glasses have fallen off my face, and and if I'm by myself, it's no good because I can't see them. I can't find them. I have to lower myself to the ground and feel very, some of you are looking at me like, I know what you're talking about. Um, I have to feel around and make sure I don't step on them so I can find them. Or if somebody is with me, they have to find my glasses for me. That's how severe my myopia is. So having myopia means I can see clearly what's right in front of me, but beyond that, I struggle. It doesn't mean that there's nothing beyond what's in front of me. It just means I don't have the ability to see it or to make sense of it. And spiritual myopia is the exact same. It's when we focus so much on what's right in front of us that we miss the bigger picture of who God is. And when what's right in front of us is good and pleasant, then our nearsightedness is not such a good, big deal because God is good and pleasant in so many other things. But when what's right in front of us is difficult and painful and all we do is focus on that, then we often begin to doubt and misjudge God as unloving or maybe even absent, even though he's right there. There was a psalmist in the Bible named Asaph, and one of the psalms he wrote is Psalm 73. I like that passage so much that I got a tattoo of it on one of my arms, part of it anyways. Um, But Psalm 73 is a great representation of the spiritual myopia that I'm talking about. Because in Psalm 73, Asaph is lamenting. He's crying out to God about all of the corrupt and wicked leaders in Israel. And these leaders are only serving themselves, sinning rampantly, and yet they thrive and they prosper. And on the other hand, Asaph sees those who are faithfully serving God and they're experiencing hardship and suffering. And so Asaph started to lose hope, as I think many of us would, and question and doubt God's goodness and love. 
He couldn't understand because he was so focused on the corruption and evil right in front of him that he couldn't see clearly God's greater character and his plan. But in Psalm 73, and we'll look at it, part of it, a shift takes place. And in verse 16 and 17, listen to what Asaph writes. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, a hopeless task. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. In order to see clearly, Asaph needed to correct his vision. He needed to change his focus from the evil that was around him and instead draw near to God in his sanctuary and focus on him. The evil around Asaph, when he did that, it didn't go away. It was still there all around him, right in front of him. But with proper focus and vision, he was able to discern their end. He was able to see clearly. And he finishes Psalm 73, saying in verses 27 and 28, he says, For behold, those who are far from you, God, shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see, the hardship, the difficulty, the sin, even the sins of other people, that you face are only part of the picture. And if we find ourselves losing hope because of the evil right in front of us, then we need some corrective lenses in order for us to see clearly again. And the two lenses that God has given us are one, the lens of the cross, and two, the lens of the empty tomb. Because when we look at life, good and bad, through the lens of the cross, We can't help but clearly see God's love and his goodness and his faithfulness to keep all of our best interests at heart. God's love and goodness come into clear focus when we look through the lens of the cross. And when we look at life through the lens of the empty tomb, God's power comes into clear focus. Because no matter what we might face, what always remains true and cannot be taken away from us is that Jesus died on the cross for our salvation, but he also rose from the dead in victory over Satan's sin and death can't be taken away from us. So whatever you're facing, whatever evil or hardship comes your way, don't lose hope, don't lose your focus on God's true character. Don't forget verses like Romans 8, 28, right, that say God is always working all things for the good of those good or bad things, for the good of those who love and are called by God according to his purpose. Or what about Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, that says, and let us not grow weary, let us not lose hope of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Spiritual myopia or nearsightedness can kill our hope, but we can combat it by seeing life through the lens of the cross and the empty tomb. Amen? The second hope killer is spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia. So if myopia causes us to fixate on the present or just what's right in front of us, then amnesia causes us to forget the past. And some of you might be thinking, yes and amen, let's forget my past. You do not want to know what I was like in my past. It was not 
pretty, I, you know, my life motto is Hakuna Matata, right? Let's just keep it back there, right? The things I went through, not good, but if we strive to forget the past, then we also risk forgetting all of the good that God has done for us, right? Which comes in handy when we're trying to protect our hope because Israel had a big time amnesia problem, big time. Because every time they ran into hardship, right, God's people, God's chosen nation, every time they ran into hardship or difficulty, what was their response? Oh, no! Right, we're all going to die. Please, God, make the income quickly so we don't have to suffer. Why, God, why? That sounds like a proper response for God's people, right? right they obviously had spiritual amnesia. They had obviously forgotten all of the times and all of the ways that God rescued and saved them from their enemies. Right? They were focused so much on their present doom that they forgot their past deliverances. And so to help them with their spiritual amnesia, God constantly reminded them to do what? Never forget, never forget how I delivered you from the land of Egypt. You see that said all throughout the Old Testament. Never forget how I delivered you from the land of Egypt. Right? Because their deliverance from Egypt was one of those moments in Israel's history where God showed up in many mighty and miraculous ways. When all seemed lost, God would show up and save the day in just the right time. God always proved himself faithful to be who he said he was and do what he said he would do. And so to help them not suffer from spiritual amnesia, God instituted all of the different feasts that you read about in the Old Testament. One of them being the Passover feast, where they would celebrate what God did for them and remember what God did for them in Egypt and believe that he could do it again. Passover is a time of celebration and praise, and this one's most important, gratitude. Gratitude. And so for us, how do we combat spiritual amnesia with gratitude? God commands us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. He says to always give thanks in all circumstances. Right? In all circumstances, even when the enemy is on full-on attack against us, God says give thanks. Why? Because gratitude forces you to look backward and to look forward. Gratitude forces you to look backward to all of the times and all of the ways that God showed up and took care of you, rescued you. Right? But it also forces you to look forward at all the promises that God made, that he is faithful. Right? Promises that God said and that he'll stay faithful to you. So spiritual myopia and spiritual amnesia, if we really think about it, they're really just magnification problems. Right? In both situations, we are magnifying the wrong things. Right? And we often magnify the small things and we minimize the big things. Right? Magnifying the hardship that doesn't deserve magnifying and minimizing God who does deserve magnifying. And the moment we realize we're suffering from spiritual myopia or spiritual amnesia, we have to ask ourselves, who or what am I magnifying in this moment? We have a choice to make. And if we choose to focus on and magnify the cross, the empty tomb, and all of the ways that God has come through for us, and all of the ways that he promises he will come through for us, then our hope will remain secure, and it will produce courage 
and confidence in our lives. The third hope killer. This one's a little bit harder, a little bit trickier to spot because it actually encourages having hope. Right, like I said, the enemy hates the hope we have. He will stop at nothing to try and steal and kill our hope because the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Remember that. But if he can't kill our hope, then he'll try to get us to put our hope in things and people other than Jesus. The third hope killer is misplaced hope. Right, do you see how this one is trickier to spot? Right, because it encourages you to activate your hope. And so politicians and governments will say, you can count on me. You can put your hope and trust in me. It's tempting to put all of our hope on family and friends to, to always be there for you. Right, it seems logical to believe that we can put our hope in that pastor or religious leader because they represent the God of hope. But hear me, putting your hope in politicians will always fail because politicians always fail. Putting your hope in your spouse or a family member or a friend to save you all the time or take care of you will always fail because people always fail. Listen, I am your pastor, but I promise you, I am going to fail you. I am going to let you down. I promise you, okay? And the reason some people walk away from faith in God isn't because they didn't have hope, but because they put their hope in the wrong places and in the wrong people. Right? They set their hope up for failure because their hope was in the things destined to fail. Now, that all sounds like doom and gloom, I know. Right? Like I'm saying that we just need to give up hope on people. That's not what I'm saying. I have incredible hope for the world, for all people, but my hope is in Jesus, not anything else. Right? And all throughout Scripture, we're warned and we're encouraged to protect our hope. Put your hope in the right places. Last verse I'll share with you. Psalm chapter 33, verses 16 through 22. One psalm has said it this way. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Worship team, you can come on up. So as we close, what I want you to do right now is I want you to begin to internalize this message for yourself. I know you've probably already been doing that, but I've, I've given you a lot of information, okay? So what I want you to do is just sit for a moment. Try and remove distraction from your mind. Maybe you need to get up and go to the back or kneel, close your eyes, bow your head. But begin to internalize this message for yourself. And as, as we're doing that, I'm just going to remind you, just a cool, brief, brief summary of what we've talked about. 
and allow God to say, that's, that's the one I need you to look at. Right? Acquiring hope is a process. It relies on obedience. So what are you doing to be obedient to God? What's that little thing that God's been saying, hey, do that. Don't look over, do that. Because when we are obedient, God shows up and he shows us that he's worthy of our hope. Also, what are you doing to strengthen your hope? Or what might you be doing that is actually weakening your hope? Through what lens are you looking at life? How are you interpreting your circumstances around you? Are you interpreting your circumstances through that filter of defeat or victory? Because if we profess faith and hope in Jesus, then we know how the story ends. No matter what victories the enemy might gain, we know that in the end, Jesus has ultimate victory. The bad guys lose, the good guys win. Also, what view of your hope do you have? Is hope just a defensive shield? Or are you using your hope as an offensive weapon to storm the gates of hell which cannot prevail against it? What hope killers are you currently facing, experiencing suffering from? Spiritual myopia nearsightedness, not being able to see the greater picture of God's love and goodness and power. If that's you, begin looking at all of life through the lens of the cross and the lens of the empty tomb. Or maybe you're suffering from spiritual amnesia, forgetting the many ways and times that God has come through for you. If so, God's saying, practice gratitude. Stop, slow down, and remember God's goodness in your life. And finally, where and in whom are you placing your hope? Politicians, governments, family, friends, not even pastors can be totally trusted with your hope. Only Jesus, the one who has proven himself to be trusted, only he can handle and care for our hope. So where are you today? What is God asking you to do in this moment? Whatever it is, be obedient Allow God to show you his character and in turn, allow him to build and strengthen your hope. And maybe for some here today, that first act of obedience, you realize, is saying yes to Jesus for the very first time. You've been on the fence about, man, do I want to be a Christian? I've got so many people on this side who aren't following Jesus, they seem to be fine. 
I've got all these other people who are following Jesus. They seem, you've been on the fence. But God is saying today, trust me, walk in obedience, surrender your life to me. Allow me to build hope in you in ways that the world and other people can't build hope in you. And if that's you, I would encourage you right now, right where you are, in your own words, say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to give you a shot. Say, okay, Jesus, I'm, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe that you're going to build my hope, build my faith. And God, I'm, I'm looking for you to come through. And my encouragement to you this morning is that he will come through. He does every single time. So surrender your life to Jesus this morning. He's worth it. And God, we just thank you for what you've done in this place. We thank you that you're moving right here in this, this little church in Tucson. You're equipping us to magnify and multiply you, Jesus, for the good of our city. That we get to be agents of hope in our city, wherever we are. And God, I pray that you would help us to just activate that hope right here in this place and to carry it out into the world around us. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Could we all stand together? We usually end our time together with communion. But again, we want to do our part to try not to spread all this stuff that's going on. Uh, so maybe just in your own heart, as, as we close, as we um, sing this one last song, would you remember Jesus? Would you remember the cross in the empty tomb? Right? His broken body, his shed blood for you. And remember the hope that that brings us. Remember Jesus this morning. And walk in hope this morning. Let's worship together one more time. Let's sing this song together. Maybe it's for yourself. Maybe it's for somebody in your life. Again, maybe it's for our, our city or our nation. Let's believe that God is going to continue doing a great work in us and through us. Thank you for listening. If you are blessed by this episode and would like to help us create more content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus, would you consider giving a financial gift of any amount today? Whatever you give will go towards building the kingdom of God in the lives of people all over the world. Thank you for your support, and we pray many blessings over you. Thank you.